Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is World Report. Good morning. I'm Marcia Young. Canada is preparing to welcome thousands of people fleeing the war in Sudan. Starting today, Ottawa will begin accepting applications to help reunite those who have family in this country. The war in the Eastern African nation has created the world's largest displacement crisis. Eight million people have been forced to leave their homes. And the UN says urgent pleas for humanitarian aid have been unanswered. Chris Brown reports. Sudan is a failed state. Ten months of conflict between two warring generals has created what aid groups say is a hunger catastrophe. It really is a forgotten war. uh... Immigration Minister Mark Miller says beginning today, the government will open a path for a relative few to escape to Canada as part of a new humanitarian pathway for Sudanese already with family members in the country. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to get 3,000 or more people into Canada, Uh, but clearly um, there's devastation that every country in the world needs to step up. Canada's Sudanese community of roughly 17,000 people wanted no cap on the numbers, and there are worries that the first-come, first-served system will leave people behind. But Miller says the plan could be adjusted. We, we don't know how much take-up there will be, but certainly it, it won't be enough to save everyone, uh, but we have to do something as a country. The UN says more than $2.7 billion is needed to deal with the humanitarian crisis in Sudan, but so far countries have committed only 3.5% of that. Yesterday, the United States appointed a new envoy to try to give failed diplomatic efforts a push. Chris Brown, CBC News, London. New data obtained by CBC News shows the country's sudden growth in international students is driven by a handful of public institutions, not the private ones the federal government has blamed for the bloated system. According to Ottawa's own data, of the 30 Canadian colleges and universities granted the most international study permits last year, only one is private. As Valérie Ouellet reports, international students are struggling with the impending cap on admissions, along with a few other issues. I'm not finding a job so far. That's the main anxiety. Shabnur Abdulatif used to be a physician in Iran. She is now two months away from graduating from an Ontario public college. She says many like her feel stuck between hope for a better life and concern about the increased scrutiny towards international students. Just please don't put all of this on us because we are here legally, we paid for it. We are not asking for anything for free. CBC News analyzed data linked to more than 1.5 million new permits approved by Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. We found that among the 30 colleges and universities that received the most permits last year, 
Only one was private. For at least a dozen Ontario public colleges, approved permits have tripled since 2018. This is not a one or two school problem. Earl Blaney works as an immigration consultant in London, Ontario. The problem is everyone else has been clapping along because everyone's making a ton of money off this. Shabnur paid $30,000 for her diploma and was shocked to see CBC's analysis. It feels like schools are not there to help us, but to get our money. It's shocking. (laughs) CBC reached out to the top 10 schools with the biggest increase in approved permits over time. One college said they don't control the number of approvals. Ottawa does. Almost all mentioned their growth aligns with government efforts to increase immigration and meet the demand for skilled workers. Valérie Wallet, CBC News, Toronto. The polls are open in Michigan. Both the Democrats and the Republicans are holding presidential primaries there today. And there's a lot at stake for both parties in this crucial state. Richard Madden joins me from Washington. And Richard, why is Michigan so important? Yeah, it's a high-stakes night for both parties. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley really needs an upset against former President Donald Trump's eventual march to the party's presidential nomination. But it's also posing a unique set of problems for President Joe Biden, who's facing backlash for not supporting a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Now, Michigan has the highest number of Arab Americans in the nation, and that community, along with other progressives, are looking to embarrass the president on the Democratic primary ballot. They're urging Democrats to vote uncommitted, which is an option on the ballot, and that would symbolize a protest vote and send a message they don't want him. Take a listen to activist Lexis Zedin, who's one of the organizers. My direct message to President Biden is that you cannot continue to use my American tax dollars to um, aid and abet in an ongoing genocide of my people. Now, that vote could send clues as to how Democrats in that state are feeling towards President Biden. But just yesterday, Biden said he hopes a ceasefire deal will be implemented by next Monday. But whether that will satisfy that wing of his party's base is unclear. And what about the impact on the Republican race? Yeah, so for Nikki Haley, Michigan represents one of her last stops to slow Trump's momentum. So a loss tonight would make her already difficult path to victory even tougher. Donald Trump has already won the last four contests, including Haley's home state of South Carolina. So last night, Haley ramped up her attacks against him, telling supporters he won't win the general election and represents chaos and division. Now, win or lose, Haley has vowed to stay in the race until at least next week's Super Tuesday contest or until she runs out of cash. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. The CBC's Richard Madden in Washington. The federal government has announced plans to, uh, it says, will help Canadians with their grocery bills. Ottawa is again freezing the threshold on proposed mergers between companies. It means that if a merger is worth more than $93 million, it will automatically be reviewed by the Competition Bureau. Francois-Philippe Champagne is the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry. It matters to people at home. Why? Because uh, by maintaining the threshold, uh, we are ensuring that the Competition Bureau is notified of more transactions in all sectors of the economy, allowing it to review them and determine if they are likely to prevent or substantially lessen competition in our country. The federal government has also put out a call for projects to protect Canadian consumers with a focus on groceries. 
New Zealand is expected to repeal a world legal first today. The law would have banned tobacco sales to anyone born after January 1st, 2009 and cut the nicotine content in cigarettes. The country would have also reduced the number of tobacco retailers by 90 percent. New Zealand was on track to have the toughest anti-tobacco rules in the world. But a new coalition government, elected last October, made the decision to repeal the law. The government has been criticized for backing down on protecting the health of New Zealanders, in particular the Maori and Pacifica populations, who have had higher smoking rates. After decades of fighting for an apology, survivors of a Dukabor residential school in British Columbia will get an official apology today in the provincial legislature. It will shine a light on what happened to 200 children in the 1950s. As Lindsay Duncombe reports, for many, it's a little-known chapter in Canadian history. I, I want people to know what the government did to us. 78-year-old Betty Kabatoff was just eight years old when she was taken from her family, forced to live with 200 other Dukabor children in a so-called school in New Denver, British Columbia, a former tuberculosis sanatorium run by the B.C. government. They were mean, cruel, physical, mental abuse, big time. The Dukobors came to Canada fleeing Tsarist Russia, pacifist Christians living communally. One group of Dukobors, known as the Sons of Freedom, settled in the Kootenai Valley. They clashed with government and law enforcement, protesting in the nude, setting their homes on fire. They did not want to send their children to public schools, so the government took their children away and put them in the new Denver facility from 1953 to 1959. Both Lorraine Salik and Walton's parents were survivors. She has been fighting for an apology for decades. We really wish that this happened 25 years ago because it, it is so important for us even to move on. Today's apology will come with a $10 million compensation package. Much of that money will go to education and healing. Betty Kabatoff says it's not enough. She wants individual compensation. Apology was great compensation a slap in the face and if she meets the premier today she plans to tell him that lindsay duncombe cbc news victoria and there is more on this story and details on that 10 million dollars to help preserve the community's history all at cbcnews.ca on our main page and that is the latest national and international news from World Report News Anytime. Same place, cbcnews.ca. I'm Marcia Young. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.